Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted. And today we are so, so privileged. I am personally privileged to have Major General Amos Yadlin with us, a former general in the Israeli Air Force, Israeli military attache to Washington, a true hero to the Jewish people. Thank you for coming on the program. I sincerely appreciate it and welcome so much. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be with you. The first question I really want to ask, you had spent so many years in the military. What was it like to transition from the military world to the civilian world? How difficult was it? It wasn't uh, difficult because my military service uh, was not uh, from A to Z Z, uh, all the time in the military. I took time out almost every uh, five, seven years. I went back to my kibbutz. I then took another a break and went to the university, as you mentioned, first time on the bachelor degree, then on the master degree. Uh, I was attaché in Washington, which is not uh, so resembling of a military service. So going to the public sector, it's not the private sector. The INSS, which I was leading for nine years, was a public service in a different uh, configuration. So uh, moving from military to uh, civilian life wasn't that difficult for me. Okay. What about the fact that for over 30 years, you were basically a fighter pilot? What was life like during that time? I, I mean, of course, I know it's stressful, but what was it like? Was it every day a crisis day? First of all, it's your uh, internal uh, feeling and the sense of mission that you have, that you belong to a very small group of pilots that the destiny of the state of Israel is on our so, uh, shoulders. So it's an elite, a serving elite, that on the other hand, uh, their profession is their hobby. We loved to, to fly. We wanted to fly these wonderful machines, powerful machines. It was dangerous. It was risky. We lost friends. But we felt that the state of Israel is what we are serving. After 2,000 years, we finally have a state, and the Air Force is a main pillar in its security. It gives you a sense of, I'm jumping from my bed in the morning, I'm running to the squadron, I'm flying the best airplanes. Suddenly it's midnight and you haven't paid attention, the time is flying. When you fly, uh, it's a wonderful feeling uh, if you survive. Yeah, I, I would imagine it was. Now, obviously, everyone knows about the famous mission to Iraq with the nuclear reactor. That's public knowledge now. What was your most memorable mission other than that? You know, I have 5,000 hours flying uh, almost all the fighters in the Israeli Air Force from uh, French Ouagan to A4, F4, Mirage, Kfir, F15, F16. 
Uh, I think the most important sortie for me is the first out of 250 combat missions behind enemy uh, lines, which was on Yom Kippur, 6th of October, 1973. I was a young pilot, a lieutenant. It was my first uh, operational flight. Uh, we took off uh, towards the sunset. Uh, it was Shabbat, Yom Kippur. We were on alert and the war had started in two o'clock and I was scrambled to the, to the Suez Canal. Uh, we basically performed in a way that I never trained to. I, uh, we fly very low at night, which I haven't done before. Uh, we have seven bones of 500 pounds each. And we were told, and this was our surprise, to attack Egyptians on the eastern part of the canal, which as young pilots, we were briefed that the Egyptians will never be able to cross. So nothing was on this sortie as we trained, as, as we believed that the Air Force uh, can do. I joined the Air Force after the Six-Day War, which was a miracle, and the Air Force was in its best. And then suddenly the Air Force is not delivered. And that's what kept me in the Air Force for 33 years, to make sure that the Yom Kippur uh, failure will not happen again. And I presume you feel, I mean, I know that I feel this way, but that it has not failed again. The image of the Israeli Air Force, the the feeling that we have in the diaspora, the world has, is that the Israeli Air Force is the best Air Force in the world. It is. But in the uh, winter of 1973, uh, a group of pilots, from lieutenant to, to uh, majors and squadron commanders, decided that next time the missiles will not uh, destroy the airplanes as it did. We lost 102 airplanes in Yom Kippur War. And fast forward a decade, uh, the 81 attack on uh, the nuclear reactor in uh, Baghdad. And then in 1982, I was at that time squadron commander deputy. Uh, we were able to destroy 19 uh, batteries of uh, Syrian missiles without losing any airplanes. We shut down 82 MiG, Syrian mix without losing any airplane. And since then, the Israeli Air Force is really uh, the best in the world. You can see it now in Ukraine. If you compare the capability to have a precise intelligence coming to the pilot in the cockpit, and then an accurate, precise weapon is delivered to the target on time, uh, in the right place, in the right time, this is the Israeli Air Force is the best in the world in doing it. And the Americans are also following, but very small number of Air Force can perform uh, in the way that the Israeli Air Force is performing these days. Wow, unbelievable. Absolutely. And we're all so proud. Talking about modern, as we, as we talk about Ukraine, I want to talk a little bit about Iran. I mean, I've read so many articles, books that you've written about Iran. Do you think at this point with what's going on, could the regime actually be overthrown? And what could we do or what should the world do to help that take place? Steve, there are five strategies how to cope with uh, Iran. There is an agreement, hopefully a good agreement, and not agreement with full of loopholes. Uh, 
like, like the JCPOA from 2015. There is the possibility of sanctions, diplomatic leverages that will change the uh, calculus of the uh, supreme leader that developing nuclear weapons make no sense because he will be suffering from uh, economic sanctions that will endanger the regime. Then there is the a strategy which I call strategy C, which is covert clandestine cyber. There is the Air Force strategy, strategy D, uh, sending Air Force with bombs. And the best strategy is to change the regime because we all sleeping very well at night when India has a nuclear bomb. We don't know any Indian president calling to wipe Israel off the map. Uh, the Indian nuclear missiles are aimed at uh, China and Pakistan. And in Independence Day in India, uh, on the missiles, it's not written, death to America, death to Israel. So back to regime change. We are not that good in predicting uh, regime change. Uh, this regime is uh, very cruel, very brutal, but also smart and sophisticated. They have learned the lesson of how they toppled the Shah in 1979. They remembered that the Shah was trying to negotiate concessions, and the, the crowd and the people smelled blood, and they went with them, and they was overthrown the Shah. They also have learned the 1989 uh, change of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Once again, uh, Gorbachev offered reform and the regime collapsed. And they are not offering reform. They are not offering any negotiation with the demonstrators, with the protests. And they also remember uh, the Arab Spring in 2011, when Mubarak basically lost the support of the military. So they have their own military, the IRGC which is strong and loyal, and this regime is going to fight for his life. And what we see in Iran today is that the regime is unable to stop the protest. But the protesters don't have enough political power and military power to remove the regime, to change the regime. We are not good in predicting regime change. Nobody predicted in the... Uh, 1987, that the Soviet Union will collapse. Nobody predicted the Arab Spring. All the experts to Iran are saying that the regime is still very strong. I do hope that they are wrong. Okay. No, I think you're right about predicting. I remember being in Israel right before the Arab Spring at the Conference of Presidents. I'm not sure if you spoke that year, but we listened to a week, as you know what it's like at the conference. You start early in the morning, you go to late at night, you hear hundreds of speakers. Not one said anything about an Arab Spring. And a week later, there was the Arab Spring. I always said to people, it's unbelievable. I listened to all the experts for a week, and not one of them could even predict, not even one of them said anything about the Arab Spring. And guess what? Next week, there it was. So you're absolutely right about that. A lot of underground uh, streams that uh, current that we don't see. And even the head of intelligence in Egypt, Omar Suleiman, who visited Israel in November 2010, and he basically said that the regime is very stable. He's not an outsider, observer, or analyst. He's part of the regime who's responsible 
for early warning to the regime that something is going in the military, in the students' uh, dormitories, in the mosque, in the market, and having so many informers in Egypt, he was unable to predict uh, the fact that Mubarak is going to be overthrown within three months. Wow, unbelievable. Well, what is actually the capability of Iran now? It's a very confusing. You hear speaker after speaker, one says they're almost there, one says they're four months away. I mean, I know that nobody knows for sure, but what are your thoughts about their capability now? Yeah, we measure their distance from the bomb on the enrichment track. On enrichment, they are very close. Since Trump withdrew from the deal, they are smart. They haven't withdrawn from the deal because the deal is serving them in the sunset, in the, in the years ahead, uh, 2023. They are getting legitimacy for a full-scale nuclear uh, program. If they want 200,000 uh, centrifuges, they can have. If they want 20 uh, nuclear reactors, they can have. So they haven't withdrawn from the deal, but they breached it. And they start to accumulate uh, enriched uranium. Now they have sufficient quantity for three or four bombs, and it's enriched up to 20 and 60%, which is very close to the 90% needed for a bomb. It is more difficult to measure the distance to the bomb on the weaponization. We don't see weaponization group working uh, in Iran. They close the group that work on uh, the research group on uh, weaponization in 2003 when the Americans went to uh, Iraq and the Iranians saw the Americans removing Saddam Hussein in eight weeks. They were unable to do it in eight years and they listened to the uh, State of the Union a speech of uh, President Bush said the access of evil is Iraq, Iran, North Korea. So they were saying, we don't want to be next. And they uh, shut down the weaponization group, uh, disperse it in universities, in other organizations, and put all the documents in an archive. The archive that the Mossad has brought uh, from Tehran to Tel Aviv a couple of years ago. So uh, weaponization can take, if you are working very quickly, uh, and you cut some uh, corners and your safety is not your main concern, you can do it in six months. If you do it more cautiously, it is two years. So on the uranium, they are already there weeks from the bomb. On weaponization, we don't see yet their weaponization, but as a chief of intelligence for many years, the fact that I am not seeing something is not to say that he is not there. Right. I understand that. So really, nobody nobody really knows for sure. It's speculation. So you're talking about the United States. So obviously, the relationship with the United States is key for Israel, very, very important. So how would you say today, how is the relationship with the United States? And do you think it's going to change at all because of the new government in Israel? Yeah, I think basically the relations, uh, I will give them a, a eight, or let's say a, a minus, not A, but A minus. Uh, they are based on three pillars, uh, common uh, values, 
common interests and trust between leaders, political leaders, military leaders, intelligence leaders. All the three pillars are still very strong, but we see some cracks in each one of them. Interest, we used to work together vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the interest was against the jihadists, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. Uh, Today, uh, it's Iran, but there is differences on seeing Iran as the main enemy. For Israel, it's the main enemy. For Israel, it's existential threat. For the U.S., it's strategic threat. But they are more concerned with China, great power competition on almost everything, ideology, uh, economy, military, technology. And Russia is number two, as we all know what's going on in Ukraine. So Iran is not enough to make Israel and America saying we have identical interests. We have common interests, but not identical. On values, America is not unified in its values. If you speak about the Republicans, they will say Israel and America are sharing the same values. When you go to the democratic part of America, some of them are still believing that we share the same values, which are uh, democracy, which are uh, human rights, which are freedom, which are a free economy. If you go to the progressive camp in the Democrats, they say Israel is now uh, far away from our, our values. And they're pointing to occupation and uh, uh, other issues that we have differences. So not fully identical uh, common values. And on trust, what you saw in the last year and a half, uh, Lapid and Bennett, I think, have returned the trust between the leaders. There is a very good relation in the military level. Israel was moved to uh, CENTCOM, and the CENTCOM commander and the chief of staff of the IDF uh, see each other almost every month. Uh, and in the intelligence, it was always a very good relation. Uh, the new government is a challenge. Is a challenge because with the two uh, uh, right wingers, uh, Smotrich and Benvir, uh, and if the government will follow their policy, uh, it, it's a clash with America, especially with the Democratic uh, administration. So we have to wait and see what we will believe to what Netanyahu is saying in Hebrew, which is basically uh, will lead to uh, a clash with the uh, Biden administration, or to what he is saying in his English interviews, that basically saying that I will be with the two hands on, on the wheel. Which president, and they don't have to answer this if you don't want, I understand, but... Which president would you say, in your personal opinion, was the very best? I'm, I'm saying they all could be good, but who was the very best for Israel? See, in, in a way, uh, Biden is a very uh, good uh, president for Israel. Maybe the last democratic president uh, will define himself as a Zionist. Uh, I don't see a democratic president in the future saying the same. Uh, Trump, there is a lot of criticism about his uh, his behavior, his values, but towards Israel, he was a good president. Obama, the defense of Israel, was very important for him. Uh, He gave Israel the last multi-year defense assistant. We have differences with him, 
on, on Iran, on the JCPOA, on the Palestinian issue, but I cannot say that he was anti-Israeli and Bush was very friendly. So uh, I think it's very important for Israel to keep good relations on a bipartisan basis with a president. I am basically saying a president that is good for America is good for Israel. I definitely agree with it. From Israel's point of view, the United States is obviously their number one ally. Who's number two? As a matter of fact, uh, if you see uh, the relation between Israel and America, sometimes it's the only ally. And it's very important ally. We never ask America to shed a drop of blood for us. Israel is protecting Israel by its own defending uh, forces, the IDF. Uh, we are getting, as I say, uh, military and uh, defense uh, system. If it will not come, we will manage. Israel now is a strong economy. Uh, we do need America desperately. In the, uh, there is no substitution for the American veto in the UN Security Council, and America is using it almost every time. When you want to see a warning light on the relation, it's uh, the, the fact that America haven't veto and abstained in December 2016. And this was a, a warning light for Israel. So America is our best and sometimes the only. If I, I want to, to find the number two, I think in Germany. Germany with the uh, Holocaust uh, heritage uh, want to help Israel and helped Israel in the past. The relations are very close, and what is happening in Ukraine is bring us even closer, because Germany decided to to allocate two percent of GDP and another hundred billion euros to to defense. And Israel is the country that they look for. They look for doctrines. They look for a weapon system. The Arrows Three is on its way. When the U.S. will approve it. And they need energy. You know, after 3,000 years, that we were a little bit upset with Moses bringing us to a country of uh, milk and honey, but not oil and gas, we, in the last dec a decade, found some uh, natural gas in the Mediterranean, and we will help Europe to, uh, to survive after the Putin uh, uh, shut down the, the gas pipe. But Moses didn't say there wasn't oil and gas. He just said there was milk and honey. He never said there wasn't oil and gas. There's no question that there is oil and gas. That's for sure. Now, when you look at uh, what's going on in Israel, the political system. Okay, they finally have a new government, thank God. But it took forever. The political system, obviously, is not working. Is there any way of correcting it, or is it everyone just so entrenched in their own parties and what they're doing, it's very hard for it to change to a better system, which will not lead every few months to another election? No doubt that Israel uh, deserves a better system. And maybe, maybe from uh, the hardship and the, the situation, the bad situation that we went through in the couple of uh, in the last three, four years, maybe it will give enough leverage and momentum for the Israeli politics to reform itself. And I, I see the need for reform uh, in three areas. One is constitution. 
we refused to, to go for, or we hesitated, not we, the founding fathers, Ben-Gurion, uh, hesitated to go to constitution because the constitution for the Jewish people is the, the Bible, is uh, the Talmud. And he basically said, okay, let's, let's be uh, uh, not upset the, the religious people. I think by now uh, Israel understands that we need a constitution, especially if there will be an overruling uh, law uh, in the Knesset, and this is the second reform, uh, to find the right check and balance between uh, the Knesset and the Supreme Court. Uh, many Israelis think that democracy is the rule of the majority. But it's not only the rule of the majority. It's the check and balance between authorities. It's the rule of law. It's the human uh, basic rights that the majority cannot violate. I think Israel needs constitution. Israel needs a better and new uh, check and balance system. And Israel needs to limit the term of the prime minister. Because all it's happening now, it's because the prime minister decided that he would be the king forever. And this is exactly uh, what corrupts the system. That's why sometimes I think about in America, I think about George Washington, what an incredible person he was, because he reshaped America that indeed we have a president and he could have been the king, but he decided that that was not the right thing to do. Look, also at, at uh, our Ben-Gurion, which is uh, the parallel to Washington, he resigned twice. He resigned in 53, and he resigned in 63. And the only problem is that he haven't legislated uh, a term limit. And this is, I think, a mistake. I want to ask you just one or two more questions. I appreciate so much you're taking your time. I want to ask you about the Haredi community. Are they beginning to integrate into society it, will it happen slowly, eventually, or where do you where do you see that whole thing going? See, there is uh, uh, two uh, voices in Israel. One look at the Haredim as a, a monoblock, uh, unified people that are demographically become more and more. There is like 35 percent of the first graders are Haredim. And demographically, it's going to be a disaster because they are not working, they are not con contributing uh, to the economy, they are not serving. Uh, my way of looking at the Haredim is not as a, as a block. I think there is many streams there, and I uh, differentiate between people who are ultra-Orthodox, but those uh, who are not Neturei Karta. Uh, the extreme, extreme Haredim is only part of them. The two-thirds of them uh, if you meet them in the street and you talk to them, they talk like Israelis, they think like Israelis, and I think they can integrate it into the Israeli society. Second, I differentiate between the ultra-Orthodox and their leadership. Their leadership wants to keep them poor and to have them under their command. The people are looking around. They are not in the ghetto. They have iPhones, they see how the rest of the Israeli society is living. The, the women are going to work, and more and more Haredim want to go to work. The leadership doesn't like it. So we have to see how it will come bottom-up, the change. 
We don't need them, by the way, in the IDF. We have enough soldiers, but we do need them in the labor market. The GDP of Israel uh, cannot continue to grow, and it's an impressive uh, way up to $50,000 per capita compared to, to the surrounding countries and compared even to European uh, countries. It's amazing economy. And if the, the ultra-Orthodox will not integrated into it, now 50% of them are working. I think it will, be, uh, it will not be good for Israel. I was born optimist, and I have this uh, belief that they have no choice but to integrate uh, and keeping their belief into the Israeli uh, society. Yeah, no, I think you're. I think you're right. I actually agree with you. I want to end this with uh, something I call a, a lightning round. I'm just going to ask you a few questions. Tell me more or less the first thing that comes to your mind. If it, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It's okay. First question: Who's the greatest person that you ever met? Ben Gurion. Okay. What about the greatest person who ever lived in Israel or the world? Any place? Oh, that's tough. Uh, maybe Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay, good. I think we agree on that. That's great. What about, is there any person right now who's alive who you have not yet met that you would like to meet? I would like to meet the next president of the United States, even though we don't know who he is, he or she. Okay, that's good. Well, hopefully we'll have a chance to, to figure that out. What about if you can meet anybody in history? Anybody at all who lived, who would it be? I think... Uh, Yoshua Binun is my guy, you know, working with Moshe, uh, helping him to create the Jewish people, the Torah, but then also entering the, the state of Israel and leading the tribes in the fight to have this uh, country for the Jewish people. Excellent choice. Best speaker you ever heard? Uh, Abba Ibn, I think. Okay. I, now, this is a question I ask other people. For you, it's easy, though. If you were in a foxhole, who would you want with you? It's better to ask me if, if I am in a, a two-seat uh, fighter uh, F-15E, who I want to, uh, to fly with. So in Squadron 69, where I did my uh, last uh, flight, uh, I had a, a navigator, a big backseater, which uh, nobody knows his name, but he was a, a wonderful man. If you uh, send me back to a foxhole, uh, Gadi Eisenkot is a good guy to be with. Okay. But what about the greatest leader you ever met? Uh, once again, we are going to Ben-Gurion. I was eight uh, years old when I met him first. I was 13 years old when uh, I met him last. But any time when I'm thinking about his role in creating the state of Israel and deciding on tough issues like having one army, uh, you know, on one hand, uh, dismantle the Palmach, on the other hand, uh, dismantle the Etzel and Altalena, uh, this, uh, going to Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, declaring the state of Israel tough decisions, and he has done them very well. Okay, one or two more. Favorite Chag or holiday? Favorite Chag? Uh, I think it's uh, Pesach, because it's an agricultural uh, festival, 
it's a, the festival of uh, freedom, of hofesh, and it's bringing the spring after winter, and everything, everything is blooming. So it's all the elements that I like. Okay, two more. Favorite vacation? Skiing. I love skiing. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Where do you go skiing? Uh, I think uh, Alta in Utah is a good place to ski. And one more question. One more place. Is there any place in the world, I know you've been every place, is there any place you haven't been that you'd like to go? Yeah, Antarctica. Antarctica. Okay, wonderful. Listen, thank you, General uh, Yadlin, for being with me today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Really one of the great heroes in Israel, one of the great heroes of the world. Thank you. I hope you should be well. Everything should go well for you. Hopefully we'll have peace in the land of Israel, and we'll get a chance, hopefully, to see each other in person whenever you speak to the Conference of Presidents, which we always look forward to. Thank you so much. I cannot agree more. Peace is so important. Israel should be strong, but seeking peace all the time and be also on the uh, moral upper end, which is so important for the Jewish people. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savisky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion. 